Hello, and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Schieber. And Don, when I say biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context, what do we mean by that? Well, biblical literacy is the desire to know the fullness of the text as opposed to just what might fit your agenda or your preferences. Uh, And so removing the buffet-style approach and instead eating the whole daggone meal. Uh, Discipleship is the idea of taking that which we uh, proclaim to believe and then actually walking it out uh, and behaving it. And the cultural and historical context is important for us to understand that these things were written to a certain people in a certain time, and we want to try our best to understand it according to their culture and their views. Yeah, so we're hoping that with these tools, um, whether you're reading along with us for the first time or it's a story that you have heard thousands of times that you're able to gleam something new from it. And, you know, hey, maybe when we get to Exodus and something sounds familiar, you'll be able to pull out a chunk of meat stuck between your teeth from that buffet. You're like, oh, that was in Genesis. How does this relate? And then, you know, kind of do this on your own, but still listen to us. All right. So this week we are in week seven of uh, going through the Torah portions. And uh, this is where we left off last week was Jacob had received Esau's blessing from Isaac. Um, Esau planned to murder him. And if you haven't listened yet, go ahead and pause now. Listen last week. We'll be right here. And then uh, Rebecca was um, lamenting, I'd say, to Isaac about the choice of wife that or wives that Esau took and asked Isaac to send Jacob back to her homeland to her brother. Mm, yeah. And so that's what happened. Isaac or uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and Jacob had fled from there. Exactly. Yeah. So um, right now where we're picking up, he is walking along the road and uh, Jacob's ladder, which is a familiar story for me. Um, Don, do you remember the first time you read or heard this story taught? Oh, man. You know, I think my first memory of Jacob's Ladder is like this little block toy thing that like flips, like you fold it up and it was like had ribbons in between different pieces of blocks and it was called Jacob's Ladder. Um, yeah. And I, and so now forevermore, I have that associated with this this story. Nice. Um interesting but all right yeah sorry i that's that you asked the first time i did i did ask so um what about you what was your first time oh boy uh probably a rob bell teaching um really yeah this was so this is a favorite of at least used to be a favorite of his i don't know if it still is but i remember because I used to subscribe to the Mars Hill podcast when he was still teaching there. And then I had heard it taught a couple of times um, at different churches I worked with or worked for or volunteered for after that. Do you mean you heard it plagiarized? No. I mean, like it was just like the, the whole, you know, God was here and we didn't know it. And it was then um, meant to be this life application about God always being present and, you know, kind of like this creepy Santa Claus figure. Right. You know, whether you're good or bad. God is watching. Always. Um, So, yeah. So it was, you know, it was one of those things where it really affected me the first time I heard it because it was like, oh, man, God is in this place and I didn't realize it. And then it typically brought more of a shame factor when I wasn't Mm -hmm. living up to my standards or like the standards that I thought were <laughs> were set for me, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But it's since then um it's been one that I've liked to return to just because uh we kind of see the physicality of Jacob start here. Okay? Um so he Okay, so Jacob falls asleep and he is using this stone as a or a rock for a pillow. And 
as he's dreaming, he sees this ladder. So he sees angels uh, ascending and descending from this. And um, during this, God addresses Jacob and reestablishes the Abrahamic covenant with him. And in it, so this is something I want to talk to you about after I'm done describing this, but he says to Jacob, uh, I'm the God of your father, or I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And so from there, you know, he reestablishes his covenant. And uh, when Jacob wakes up, he says, surely God was in this place and I did not realize it. And he makes an altar with him or, you know, and uh, so I remember your teaching on this the last year, yeah, maybe a little while ago, um, where you were talking about the raising up of, of the stones for that. Yeah and just how kind of heavy that would have been. Right. Like, I mean, he, he takes the stone that he's sleeping on and when he stands it up, it's a pillar. So like, first of all, you know, this, I, I alluded to it last week that we were going to discuss and look, see the strength of Jacob, like the manifestation of this powerful uh, human. Right. And so this is one of the first hints that we get at just the sheer strength of of him we're going to see it later on in this passage as well when he meets uh rachel at the well uh and then we're going to see it in a future uh one when he's able to wrestle god and actually cling on to god and hold god in some like you know chokehold or something until he receives a blessing and so there's something that the author wants us to know about the sheer strength and power of Jacob. And this is the first kind of nod to that, that he, he takes that, which he used as a pillow and stands it up for a pillar. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's really in contrast to just kind of this image that I have with Jacob. It doesn't matter how many times I reread this part of the text. Like I always have this vision of this kind of spoiled, you know, brat, type of kid who has spent his life in tents and, you know, just kind of a dink, you know? <laughs> um, and then, you know, he's on his own and he's starting to having to come into his own through this journey. But just this idea of him being able to stand up the pillar really leaves. Um, if you go back and reread Genesis, like the, not Genesis because we're reading it, but the previous chapters, it gives a really different spin to the situation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And maybe this is a good place for us to wade in because last week we were talking about Esau and how Esau realized that in some way his Isaac, his father's love for him was was conditional. It was based on the amount of, of game that he brought him. And because, I mean, the text actually says he loved Esau for the game that he brought him. And so like, it's interesting because I think that we see that both brothers are craving for the love of the father of Isaac and not getting it. And so the one moment that I get the impression that Jacob feels loved by Isaac is when he is dressed as Esau. Um, and so here is this picture of, of Jacob uh, wanting desperately to be loved by Isaac. And the only time he seems to receive any kind of adulation in the text, at least, is when he is dressed up as his brother. Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, it's super important. And I think it's going to play out. I, you know, I think, I think it'll be interesting as we talk through this section and we can see maybe some more of that kind of coming out in this in this text uh and so yeah so i think it's important for us to remember isaac is this weird character right like that both sons crave love from him uh esau realizes that maybe the love for him is easily replaced because his brother so easily replaced him just by dressing up and bringing his dad the right food, so to speak. And that was all that was needed for Esau to be replaced. And Isaac is feeling the only time my dad demonstrates love to me is when he thinks I'm Esau. Yeah, that is a 
that I mean, it's heartbreaking. Absolutely. And I think it's going to play into Jacob's character the, the rest of the way here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get back to um, Jacob's dream. This is also the first dream that's recorded in the text so far, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Well, I actually, I, I challenge that. I'm, I'm not sure it is because I think Abraham's is considered a dream uh, when he sees the fire pot and the torch pass through. Ah. I don't know if they name it as a dream, but it says he fell asleep and uh, it was a deep dread that cu- fell over him. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, it says fifteen twelve. as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, but I it might not refer to it as a dream. So maybe he woke up. Well, we're both right. We'll go with that. Perfect. So we'll, we'll um, let our listeners decide. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll put a poll up about that. So uh, you've done, so you had a, a really interesting teaching on this that I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, Cause it's the first time I've heard anything other than what I've considered to be like the static normal teaching on this, which is the God was here and, in this place and we, I didn't know it. Yeah. Um, well, and I, it plays into kind of what I was saying about Jacob wanting to, to find the love of Isaac um, and having only experienced that as dressed as Esau, because I mean, Esau is everything that Isaac wants, right? Isaac is, you know, there's a great quote in uh, a commentary uh, series that I love that's uh, called Torah Queries. And it says, uh, Esau is everything that is passive, nearsighted, unadventurous. Father Isaac is not. And the boy's father favors Esau. And Jacob doesn't fit that description. You know, you get the impression that Esau didn't want to. And so anyhow, that's that's the dynamic in which we're we're sitting. So by Jacob realizing that he hasn't he hasn't received the acceptance or the love of his father, you know, he, he tricks him into giving him the blessing. Um, and he does it by using Esau's clothing and Esau's food. Um, and he still doesn't pass, right? Because think about it. What does uh, 27, 22 say in your version? Uh Uh, Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he still doesn't pass, right? Like he still doesn't pass for his brother Esau. Uh, It's the father knows that the voice is not Esau's. Um, And so it's interesting because then it talks about Jacob uh, fleeing and he flees without food or clothing and is wandering in the wilderness, right? And then he's overcome by a sudden darkness, right? And the text says that, uh, you know, I think it's 2816. What does 2816 say? When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. Right. So this place where he is, is in the middle of nowhere, right? and it kind of reflects his own life, right? Like he is like, he has a blessing, not because he's Jacob, but because he was Esau um, because he tricked his dad. His dad gave Esau the blessing. It's just that he stole it. He intercepted it. And so here is Jacob who is in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and he's nowhere right? Like his own blessing isn't even his. And it's only because his father thought he was someone else that he received this blessing. And there's this struggle in this picture that I just don't think, again, because we're not good at storytelling and we're not good at story listening. 
we we don't really enter into this emotionally and he's now run and he's scared and he has nothing and in some ways i would argue he's nothing i mean he's got nothing but oil right clearly right but so it's it's to me this is such an agonizing picture he just falls down in the middle of nowhere and yeah i think this is a very reflective piece right yeah i mean it really you know especially when you bring in the um abraham your father and the god of isaac aspect where he where god calls abraham his father but not isaac yeah i mean i think wow like what is what is the what is the author saying there about isaac's relationship i mean he's in in a lot of ways he's orphaned at this point um yeah i you know i wonder like do you think that that um so i'm just thinking about how and you know i'm I'm going to try and walk this out. This is the first time I've, I've thought this, but the uh, description of Rebecca being sim- being like Abraham. Right. So you've got Abraham, you've got uh, Rebecca who loved Jacob. There's yes. no reason why stated like with Esau, but that she just loves him. And so she's filling that Abrahamic void, right? Is kind of where we were. We were seeing that, you know, the, the, she is the one that the that's revealed that the covenant will continue through Jacob and not right. Esau. And so I just wonder if that's, I don't know, kind of a playoff of that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that we could probably acknowledge that in some way, her manifestation as a, a, a proxy for Abraham in this, in this relationship, in this marriage that uh, Isaac does not reflect that same Abrahamic life or behavior, at least the way the text presents it. Um, Yeah. I think that's an interesting way to read that uh, your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I think that's interesting. Cool. Um, Go ahead. So, so in this passage, you know, the rabbis picked up that it was interesting that it says the angels were ascending and descending, right? Because they said, well, wouldn't the angels need to descend first and then ascend? Like, why would they start ascending and then descend? That because their starting point should be the heavens, not the earth. Um, And so some have viewed that as this was an invitation for Jacob to ascend the ladder. And, and so this idea that he's invited to ascend and maybe see the world anew. Uh, and I love this idea, like thinking about, you know, how, if we take a moment, I think about a really clear moment for me was, uh, I had the opportunity to study in Turkey with, uh, Ray Vanderlaan and, when while we were there, um, one of the things we did is we climbed up on this hillside and we got to the top of this cliff. And the cliff was amazing because you looked at it and there's like, there's no way we can climb this thing. But there was a staircase basically built into the side. Thanks, Rome. And uh, so we get to the top and we look down over this, what was at one time a city. And you could see the, the temple of Artemis down below and it looked like you know it was super tiny because we were so high up and uh in that same town there was a house church found that had a a combination of the the cross and a menorah uh as part of like the the etchings in one of the stones and showing that some of the people were christian in that space so anyhow, we said the Shema from up there, which is hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4. And one of the things that the teacher told us was when you climb up here, 
and you get this perspective from up here, the temple of Artemis is tiny. But when we were down below, it seemed overwhelming and powerful and seemed beyond anything that we could overcome. And sometimes we just need to climb to a higher place to get a better perspective. And if from our perspective, the temple of Artemis is this small, how much more from the perspective of God? Uh, which leads me back to the thing that we talked about with uh, the Tower of Babel, right? Where God has to look down to see what they're doing. You know, they're building this big badass tower and God has to like kind of put on his bifocals and lean down to get a good look because he, God can't quite make out what it is they're doing. And so this picture of ascending is, I think, important. Yeah. Um, you know, Babel and the latter share similar qualities. They um, both start at the bottom and they are reaching up to the heaven. And it's like, so um, I was on LF Beta in the video for this week talks about this. So if you have the opportunity, check it out. I'm not going to. We're total fanboys at this oh, point. Absolutely. I mean, so it's great because they tie in um, three stories, Babel, and then um, the, the bookends of, of this portion. Uh, so just check it out. It's really, it's really well done. And if you're not going to check it out, then I'm sorry. But it's it's really it's really well done. How, just like the idea that the people of Babel were making this tower to be their legacy. Like this is who we are. This is what will be here after we're gone. We are establishing this, and so the idea of God doing the same thing with this ladder. But it's so with you know like the ascending, like you were talking about, but it being Jacob because at the end of the story we see this. Um, and it's the first part of the next reading, but uh, a similar situation. Jacob is on the road after having been blessed by his father, um, but now father-in-law. And he goes to a place and their angels meet him. He doesn't have to dream about it um, because the ladder's no longer needed because God mm-hmm. is establishing God's legacy who will you know, be a blessing for all nations through Jacob. Yeah. Well, and I think that leads into kind of where, you know, I think I took this, the teaching you were referencing of mine, which is from that point at the top of the ladder, it's a transformative moment for Jacob, right? When Jacob awakes, he says, you know, he has this new consciousness. He has this new way of viewing the world. And he says, surely God was in this place and I did not know. Um, but I would argue, uh, that it's not, it's not necessarily the place in which he stands that he's talking about, but he's talking about himself, that God was always in this place, Jacob, right? And that Jacob was always the place where God already dwelled, um, And so he's referring to himself and that he now begins to understand that he himself reflects the divine image and that it was his birthright all along, right? We kind of mentioned that briefly last week. And so it it isn't that he needed to be someone else, right? Uh, He didn't need to dress, um, like Esau. He didn't need to uh, have the food of Esau. Um, and so he, he kind of, uh, and he didn't need the approval of dad, right? And so these three things he did not need, yet he felt very strongly that he needed those things in last week's portion. Yeah. I mean, and why wouldn't he think that? Well, I don't even know if he knew that he I would push back saying, I don't know if Jacob thought that he needed Isaac's blessing. Unless you take the the position or the posture of him needing it so that uh, the blessing didn't restore Esau's birthright, then he would have needed it in order to continue the covenant. Because he, you know? I think you're thinking too legalistic here. Okay. Um, and... I think I'll I think I'll persuade you to my side. 
do it. All right. So read Genesis 28, 20, and 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a 10th. So I do love this part just because it's Jacob's contract with God. Like, if you don't do this, I'm, I'm done. Yes, but what are the three things he asks for? What are the three requests? Uh, food to eat, clothes to wear, and to return safely to his dad's house. Yes. So he wants his own food, not Esau's food. He wants his own clothing, not Esau's clothing. And he, Jacob, wants to return to his father's house. Fair. Because if you think about it in the last section, right, the three things he didn't have was his own food, his own clothing, and his own father. Uh, It wasn't until he was someone else. It wasn't until he was Esau that he had dad. Do you, okay, but do you think that the, and I might just be getting into the weeds here, but return safely to his father's house, he actually means Isaac and not Abraham? I think he means Isaac. Because before this, we have the Abraham, your father line. Yeah, I think he means Isaac. Okay. I mean, I, I think you could make a case, but I, for me, uh, it works best with my teaching if it's Isaac. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So let's keep going. Okay. Where um, do you want to go? Is there anything else you want to cover with that? I think just in review, I would just say this is like a, you know, and again, another book I recommend is Torah Queries, which I owe a lot of my uh, even reading of that to that uh, to that book. Uh, and it's, I think it's so important to recognize this is like a, uh, a coming out story for Jacob, right? That he has disguised himself his whole life, much like Esau did, right? Uh, you know, it's such an interesting thing. Like, like they both wanted so badly to have what the other had, not ever realizing that they both, it reminds me of the prodigal son story, right? Like that you both could have had what you wanted um, if you would have just been willing uh, or maybe not fallen into the trap of expectations of your parents. But we all know how easy that is. And so I just think this story is really interesting for Jacob to begin finally embracing who he is and not trying to live up to the expectations of someone else. Right. So I think that that's such a important moment. The latter is the moment that Jacob becomes Jacob and no longer Esau in drag. Yeah. That's a or drag Esau. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so from there, uh, Jacob arrives in Padan Aram, which is the home of Laban, and he arrives at that same well, or at least we're led to believe the same well that Eleazar met Rebecca at. And I love this part of the text um, because what we see is, well, so. What we read is somebody arrived to the well, uh, ask if they've heard of Laban, and um, strangers who are there point out that Rebecca, or not Rebecca, Rachel, who's a shepherdess, is bringing up Laban's flock, and so he, you know, gets his swole on and he pushes that <laughs> uh, the top of the well off, which is well. Wait, yeah, yeah. Before you, like, I don't want to breeze through that because there's like some great lines in there. Yeah. Right. Like, go ahead. Um, No, go ahead. So like, I love that. It's like Jacob went on a journey, came to a land. He looked and saw a well in the field. Behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well, they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. It was huge. It was huge. Right. 
And so this this and so it says when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone. They plural would roll the stone from the mouth. They had to wait until all the flocks arrived in order to roll this stone away because the stone was so huge, right? And so Jacob is sitting there just hanging and waiting for this moment when Rachel shows up. And as you said, he gets his swall on and he hops up and he just kind of flips the cover off, right? Like it's nothing, right? So this is the second example. You know, we talked about the pillar and this is another example of the author throwing in these hints of just how strong and powerful of a person Jacob is. And so he just picks up this, this rock and flips it away. I just, I think it's hilarious. Like he's like, Hey there girl. And he like hops up and I just picture like, you know, muscle beach, uh, moment. Right. (laughs) So he's, yeah, he's just like, he rips part of his, um, a cloak to tie his hair up so it's out of his eyes he's looking like mad it's an american flag it's american flag too oh obviously i mean this is the bible we're talking about yeah and so he's just like you know sun sweat just glistening he's like and he put for those of you who can't see what i'm doing i'm making a pushing notion with my arms and he's just like then leans on it awkwardly you uh know laban Nahor's grandson. <laughs> yes, that's totally how I picture it. Thank you. Oh. Nice. No, <laughs> no, but it's it is it is super funny. And then, um, so we so this is uh, one of my like I was saying earlier. I love this part of the text because um, we see. So we've seen uh, Jacob's strength but now we actually see emotion from him because you know, we were just joking around, but like, seriously, if you're by yourself, you have nobody with you, whether God's with you or not, and you're in the wilderness, there are animals and there are people and there's nature that can kill you. So there's this fear factor that's there. And so when he sees Rebecca or I'm sorry, not Rebecca, when he sees Rachel um, and he finds out who she is and, you know, he kisses her and it's just this beautiful moment of emotion that I just love because he weeps. Yeah. And, you know, I think about Esau weeping, but this is a different type of weeping. Like this is somebody who was alone, but now has family. He was nowhere. And now he's somewhere. Yeah. And it's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, I like how it says, and lifted his voice and wept in verse 11. Like, I want to know in some way, what does that mean? He lifted his voice. Um, I mean, it's very poetic. Uh, I imagine it meant something uh, more than just being poetic, but I, I do love that. That one verse is just great. It's, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And now I want to make sure our audience, since we did such a good job drawing another picture of Jacob doing this, it's not Jacob didn't dip her down and kiss her full on mouth in no, this picture. It's not like a Fabio painting. No, no, it's definitely not that. Um, but it's it is this moment of you know greeting and uh, and familiarity and homecoming uh, that might have been shocking to Rachel. <laughs> Probably. So yeah. Um, so Don, um, I think you touched earlier, if you didn't touch earlier in this episode, you definitely said it in a previous episode. Um, we have this vision of the well again. Yeah. Another moment where, you know, someone is meeting, uh, their spouse or a future spouse, uh, at a well, uh, you know, the well represents, uh, the fertility, uh, you know, some would call it the vagina of the earth. I know that's uncomfortable for people to hear, but that's that's the, this picture of a birth. Um, you know, George, I was having this amazing conversation with uh, someone I've just recently started discipling, Tiana, and she's a doula. And are you familiar with what a doula is? I am um, very familiar, yes. So it's someone who helps people with their pregnancy and post-pregnancy and birthing of the child. 
And we were talking about the creation narrative and she's kind of rethinking her understanding of creation, her understanding of humanity. And we were talking about how the Adam and Eve, the scene of Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden was a premature birth, right? That they were being birthed out into the world and that this is that picture, right? And so we were, we were talking about this and one of the great pictures is that God, like the womb is void, right? When a woman is barren, the womb is void. And so when God first speaks in Genesis 1, uh, God is has created something formless and void. And that we started wondering together about is God's fascination with barren women in the text because God experienced barrenness at the beginning of the creation narrative? And then God brings life from that formless and void. And in bringing this life from God's own barrenness, God then becomes completely fascinated with the story of God is always about bringing life from the barren, yeah. from the formless and void. And man, that I, I, it has had me, my mind spinning all week. And, you know, and then when finally God is pregnant, right? Even like he takes Adam and puts Adam in the garden, right? Even has that, uh, again, maybe uncomfortable for some of our listeners, that insemination moment of Adam being placed in the womb uh, is, is so interesting. And then God has a premature birth. Adam and Eve are born out. They were always supposed to be born, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so God, and so then this also, okay, so I realize we're getting a little off track. This is a little extra for the folks listening. Um, but, uh, you know, we were talking about this idea, Tiana and I, that um, that maybe the reason God talked about, you know, we, we've mentioned in the podcast earlier about, uh, you know, being th- discarded from the garden uh, and that the birth pains, like um, I believe we mentioned in that podcast, that there seems to have, must have been birth before uh, this curse. Otherwise, how would they know the birth pains increased? But what if it was God saying that you're going to experience the same birth pains I just experienced? Because God pushing them out of the garden, God birthing them out of the garden into the world caused God great pain. I just, oh man, it has, it just has my mind running a mile a minute. So this is another moment where, you know, spoiler alert, uh, Jacob meets his spouse, his future spouse, and she's going to be barren. Yet she is going to ultimately be the one that births the hope of the world. Like this is so good. And to me, the idea that, you know, I've often talked that God never asks of anyone something that God does not first go through. And if God, if God's first experience within creation was barrenness and that that's where life is birthed through, it just, it makes so much more of the narrative, this gorgeous tapestry. Yeah, I mean, I would love to get my spouse's take on this because for those that don't know, she's a, a, a NICU um, nurse practitioner. And so she deals with premature birth literally every day. And so yeah. I'm just thinking like we in that episode, we talked about God addressing the trauma. Of yes. And how when, you know, depending on how early a child is born, um, yep. How premature they have to recreate recreate the womb to address that trauma, and so and like, that's what Tiana mentioned too: learning to swaddle and learning all that stuff, and how God learned how to care for them outside of the womb, fashioning the clothes, and just yes. Oh man, this is a free podcast, so good. Now I just want to scrap this and talk more about that. But we, okay, um, maybe if we ever do a Patreon, we'll we'll do a 
we'll, we'll do that. Okay, so keep going. So this is just, again, we have a scene where we're going to, Jacob is going to meet his spouse, right? Every time we see, and this, again, is so important when we see Jesus meet the woman at the well. Because what would we assume about the woman at the well? Because what about every woman we meet at a well? She's barren. Well, Hagar wasn't barren at the well. No, but Hagar had already had a child at the well, and she also didn't meet a future spouse at the well. Was Rebecca barren? Yeah. I guess, okay. I guess when I think barren, I think um, Sarah. But I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Well, at least I think the tradition is that Rebecca was barren because it takes a long time before she has, she she struggled with her pregnancy. She struggled. That's right. Um, I don't know that the language was actually used that she was barren. Uh, I'd have to go back and look. But my argument would be that when it says, when Jesus says you've you've been with five, you've had five husbands and the person person you're with now is not your husband is because if she was barren, she probably was discarded by one husband after another because she could not provide a descendant. And yeah. so this last husband has taken her in or this last man has taken her in but won't marry her because she can't promise a child. And so Jesus is addressing her barrenness. And I've heard that taught about Jesus, that she was a whore or she was a loose woman. Uh, and no, most likely she was barren. And this is playing into the collective memory of a Jewish audience hearing this story saying, eh, you know, this powerful picture. So anyhow, and there is marriage language there that Jesus uses that's really powerful too. But I, again, digress. It's a free podcast. Yeah. Um, so from there, uh, Rachel runs to Laban, tells him what's going on. Laban runs out of the tent. And we kind of see- Mo money, mo money, mo money! Exactly. We see this similar replay um, from when Eliezer was there. So we see Rachel run to Laban's tent. Laban runs out and greets uh, Jacob. And then from there, we are on the way to Jacob potentially marrying Rachel at some point. Right. Well, one thing I want to I want to point out. So, what do you think about verse fourteen and twenty nine? You are my own flesh and blood. Okay. So mine says, "Surely you are my bone and my flesh." Right. And he stayed with him a month. That's kind of I, a I call. Go ahead. I would say that's to me that calls back to Genesis three. Right. Of Adam's description of Eve. Yeah. This is why a man will leave his father's household. Yeah. Right. So, well, when he first sees her, surely she is uh, blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, or however it, it's, it's phrased. I'm just curious how close that quote is to the actual quote. I, I mean, I'd have to go look in the Hebrew or, you know, even look in a Septuagint to see how intentionally close those are. But I think that's an interesting uh, kind of statement there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. I, it was no, a little a little bit of a right term, but I, I find that that statement to be really interesting and definitely reminds me of that Adam and Eve moment. Yeah. So, so what do you think about the fact that Jacob gets a blessing, so to speak, um, receives, uh, how do I want to say this? Um, that a disguise is used to fool Jacob. Oh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I thought that was um, one of the things I thought of last week when we were prepping for last week's episode was how in the same way he will get deceived. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I think it's, I think it's great. <laughs> I mean, I, but I also, I don't know at the same time because like it's, you know, I don't think that, Jacob was being deceitful when he did that. I mean, I know it's a, I don't know. I, I have complicated feelings around that whole deception. About Having dichotomous uh, emotions is what the Bible's all about. Yeah, absolutely. So on one hand, I think it's amazing that in the same way he uh, threw off Isaac, that he himself is being thrown off. I look like you're going to say, but I was going to say, but something before we get down that road, 
something I want to point out really quick is I absolutely love um, this this passage because the Bible gets weirdly romantic. Um, okay. It starts in 19. Uh, Laban said, better I give her, talking about Rachel, uh, better I give her to you uh, than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Mm, yeah. Like we, we don't see that language um, yet. Like this is the first time, like I just think it's kind of, it's just beautiful. Yep. It, it just breaks from what we have read so far. So yeah, then he gets deceived, but I don't know. How do you feel about it? About the deception? Yeah. Well, I think, I think what's key is we want to ask what's different this time. Laban set everything up and the tent was dark. Okay. Other than the actual facts of what's different, like how does like Jacob go ahead. No, you finish your question. Well, I'm going to kind of answer it because I'm, I don't, I don't have the skill to ask the question I want to ask. Okay. Um, so, so, but the, the original question was, how is it different this time? Yeah. So what, what's different about this moment versus the other moment? Well, um, I mean, aside from the gender swap. Yeah. Again, I don't, I want to get into the story piece of it. Like, like thematically story wise, what's different? Uh, not necessarily factual wise, what's different. So for me, it's Jacob doesn't flee. He stays. Um, and Jacob fully embraces and loves Leah. And we don't get the impression that that's what Isaac does for Jacob. Well, I'd make the argument that it's a different kind of love. I don't know. Really? I mean, obviously it's not a father son kind of love. But, I mean, it says that he loves Rachel more, but it doesn't say he doesn't love Leah. In fact, their intimacy and relationship makes Rachel jealous. Their intimacy makes her jealous or the fact that she's that she bears kids? Because later on in the text, we see the... Yeah, okay, so in 2930, Jacob played with Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah. He worked for another seven years. Ah, okay, here it is in 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to see that what that is, because in the same way that it says, Jesus says, if you do not love me more than your family, love me and despise them. Uh, like, it's not the same thing we mean today. Sure. Right? Like, like hate your family and love me. We read that and we're like, what the F Jesus? That sounds terrible. So Jesus is actually saying that you, if you're going to follow me, then you need to put my instruction, my leadership above what your family would have you do. Right. Um, and this isn't abandon your family and don't take care of them and don't feed them and don't clothe them or house them, but instead be faithful to the journey of being discipled by Jesus. So in the same way here, I'm not convinced that Jacob doesn't love Leah, right? Um, I don't think that this is just Jacob doing his, his duties uh, with Leah to satisfy some kind of expectation i think this is that that jacob loved her but jacob's heart is clearly with with rachel and that's fair yeah okay so yeah i don't think that jacob hates leah or does not love her yeah i mean i don't i didn't i guess i didn't realize i was making it sound like he hated her but yeah okay yeah yes that makes sense although i do love how this is like a cautionary tale of why you should never break Leviticus 18.18. Sure. Yes. For those of you listening, pause it and look it up. It'll be a nice surprise. So George, we're getting to the end of our time. 
um, where do you where do you want to go for this? Where do you want to go with this? Where do you want to close this out? Where where do you want to wrap it up? Man, there is still so much we have left in the text that I wanted to go through, and always. I mean, I'm really glad that we got sidetracked by the uh, the birthing Genesis narrative because that's something I can't wait to chew on. Um, but you might want to rephrase that. Yeah, I'm not a Moabite. <laughs> um no but i don't know i guess i would just say hey if you guys read something this week or if you're following along with the readings um and you have a question on something we didn't cover shoot us text or uh, that's a another way of saying email us or tweet at us or comment on facebook don't give out my phone number too late um because, uh, you know, that could be our next off the cuff, which we still plan on doing. We just, you know, haven't done one uh, in a couple of weeks. But um, I don't know. Anything you want to say before we close up shop? I, I think maybe I just want to say every single week there's so much more left, right? And, like, we should be if you listen to this podcast and you're enjoying it, I hope what we're doing is motivating you to take a look at the text, not say, Oh, that's interesting. Now I'm going to add that to my, my biblical spank bank, right? Like I want that to be uh, something that motivates you to enter the text more. Yes. In so many ways. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Evangel bros. We're, uh, our email address is evangelbros at gmail.com. Um, next week, we're going to be going over Torah Portions 8. Yes. And uh, done. is there anything else? I've just totally enjoyed all of our listeners and the feedback we get and the interactions that we have. And it's just been such a fun trip. And I hope that you continue to interact with us and send us some of your ideas and thoughts. Absolutely. Well, I have been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week. Bye.